Hi there, and welcome to the Future of Influence podcast. Here we discuss the power of influence, leadership, overcoming challenges, and more. They call me King Raj Singh, creator of the Future of Influence podcast. Stay on after the show, and we'll share how you can be the next guest on one of the fastest growing podcasts in our industry. With that, here we go. Welcome to the Future of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Sandy Fowler. I am chatting today with Greg Wilson. Greg is the founder of Hempwood, which can be found online at hempwood.com. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Hey, well, thank you for having me. I was, as I was saying, when we chatted a little before the podcast, I didn't even know that you could make wood out of hemp. So would you tell us a little bit about what's happening? And I loved your answer to why I said I didn't know that this could happen. So if you'd share that with us too. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, here we are the only hemp wood manufacturer in the world. We reconfigure the cell structure of a plant, in this case, hemp. We put it through this algorithm that I wrote about 20 years ago in college, and it transforms it into a replacement for hardwood. So it replaces your Brazilian cherries, your tropical hardwoods, or your domestic hardwoods like your white oaks. So it goes through this process and it takes a total of four months instead of 200 years to have a product with similar or better characteristics as those tropical hardwoods. So what are some of those characteristics? What am I going to get if I'm using hemp wood? Because I've looked at different kinds of flooring and things, and there just always seems to be a huge downside. Oh, so the whole point of flooring is the higher the density of the wood, the higher your hardness and stability of the product. That's why an old growth hardwood is so much more important or so much more sought after than a young growth or a planted or plantation hardwood. So whenever something has a long period of time, it gets a high density. Your density determines your hardness. Because it's literally uh, the Jenka ball test for hardness takes a steel ball bearing and how much pressure it takes to push it 50% of the way into the wood. And that gives you your hardness rating. And then your stability is based on the amount of moisture that can move in and out of the material. So your humidity. So whenever your humidity is high, there's a lot of moisture in the air. If there's little air pockets because your density is low, then um, it actually allows the wood to expand and contract. So our company's name is Fibonacci because we use the Fibonacci sequence, which is nature's sequence, in our compression ratio to make bamboo was my first product. I lived in China for 14 years building bamboo plants. That was um, what I did in college and then ended up being 35 years old before I got out of there. And then we did... uh, fast-growing eucalyptus, which are plantation logs that grow in 10 years to replace a 100-year-old tree. And then there was the um, recycled woods. So we went to Poland and we went to the Ukraine and actually figured out a way to recycle the offcuts from the plywood mills. And we can turn that back into a solid wood. Then hemp became legal in the United States in 2014. And we started to um, actually look at the research and how to make it work. 2016, the patents were filed. 2018, I moved to Kentucky. What sparked your interest in this? You've had a long history of working in 
renewable, sustainable alternatives to using our old growth hardwood. What sparked your interest in that? I'm an outdoorsman. So in the little time that I do get out of this place, I'm always camping or hiking or bow hunting or fishing or something like that. So I live on a farm. Um, We raise animals and stuff like that. I love just being in the woods. And so when you see a clear cut forest, that is a big problem. Uh, Forestry is not bad if it's done properly. And so like on the farm that I live on, they took out uh, 39 white oaks last year. And that's um, selective harvesting where you come in and you take out the older, larger trees without disruption, what's around them. And then the canopy can grow back. If you go through and just cut everything, which is the most profitable way to cut down woods, then it takes it 10, 20, 50, even 100 years to reset. And some of the things don't even reset for like an old growth forest. That's why there's so much protectionism put around some of those old growth forests that have never been harvested because those ecosystems take so long to grow. Yeah. So when you're working with your clients, tell us a little bit about the services you offer them and how you help them. So our clients are a broad range of people. For our uh, clients, we have end customers. They purchase lumber. So people that are like a garage carpenter. We have uh, retail stores. We have specialty lumber stores. We have lots of mill workshops. Um, People that are making like swinging day beds or people that are making furniture factories. Uh, we sell flooring direct end customers. We have retail customer networks. So there is such a broad range. You can't really answer saying, what do we do for our customers? Because each one is treated individually. And so if someone needs a specific size or a specific color, or if they need something shipped tomorrow, we try to make it happen on a case-by-case basis. And that's because it's all made locally here. We're the only ones doing it. And so if it's all grown locally, then we can have a customer from Pennsylvania who sent us their hemp that they grew on their farm. We convert that into wood, make flooring out of it, and then send it back to them in Pennsylvania so they can build a house on their farm that they grew. Or there are different customers that have different requirements, like moisture content that um, you need a lower moisture content for going to Colorado or Montana, or something like that. So we can dry it out to a lower moisture content for them. We can have, oh, people in California that are trying to grow their businesses. A lot of dispensaries or hemp companies or something like that are growing their businesses by using hempwood and trying to create a brand. So if they have more than one location, people understand or expect the same thing when they come in. So we'll try to help them creating their brand and work through what they specifically need in their projects. So it sounds like you have a really broad base of clients and customers you're working with. And that ties into, I think, creating influence as you're, as you're growing your business is that you're working with so many different people in different types of businesses, as well as individuals, even that, you can see a lot and you can impact a lot 
So as you're growing your business and you, you've started establishing this and, and attained some influence there, what were some of the challenges that you found that maybe come from even having that broad base of people to try and, and service and deal with? Oh, being in the hemp industry, the federal government's the worst challenge that you could have. Point okay. blank, they commandeer funds out of your bank account without asking. They come and have all different types of rules and regulations and testing, including drug testing, including walking around the property to see if any seeds have fallen out to cause what we call hitchhikers to grow. Um, There's been just unbelievable amounts of things that have happened because we're a hemp company. And technically, we're a flooring company that just happens to use hemp, but that's all people focus on. did bamboo before this. So worked for 14 years doing bamboo in China, did fast growing eucalyptus, and that was in China and in Australia, and then in Europe, recycling woods. But just because it says hemp, you've got a million times more uh, regulations or requirements on what you're doing. We have to pay seven or $800 a year just to have a license to be able to process hemp even though the U.S. Department of Agriculture determined that our hemp is the same as what they use for rope. And so if every farm in the state of Kentucky had to get a license because they have rope made out of hemp, no one would do farming anymore. But yet that can be applied to ours. So there's more problems that I've seen in any of my other seven businesses combined. It's strange. Um, That coupled with COVID, happening this past year when we have a business that's it was only six months in operations when COVID hit. So that just kind of caused a complete rethink on how you do stuff. That's why we sell directly to end customers now, because most of our retailers had uh, shut down to some degree. And so we couldn't just not ship anything. So our customer base became 10 times as many because For instance, in Southern California, when they shut down our largest um, customers out there that had lumber yards, they weren't servicing those customers, but somebody had to or they were going to go away. So we would just continue to work with our customer that shut down due to government regulation, but keep sending product out. We also turn towards um, turning a lot of our finished goods into kits because we want to limit our product range. And the best way to do that and reduce the shipping cost, if it's going direct to an end customer, is to make a cabinet kit instead of building the cabinet ourselves or make a table kit. And that's how we picked up the garage carpenters, people that were in quarantine or locked down and um, wanted to do something. And they saw the positive image of the made in America. They saw the positive image of the grown in America and the positive image that everyone here gets paid a fair wage all these different discussions about minimum wages and stuff like that. If you've made it past your probationary period here, you're making 15 bucks an hour. And so there is no, well, is it going to cost more to do it? We already do that. It's not a problem, but that has to get passed on. The cost does somehow. And because our customer base is typically your whole food shopper, um, they understand that I live on an organic farm. An organic apple doesn't look as polished and shiny because it's actually natural. 
And if you do it right, it costs a little bit more. But when you're enjoying that apple or your piece of hempwood flooring and you realize, hey, you can look on YouTube and see the people that are actually making your product. There's no smoke and mirrors. There's no hidden secrets or anything like that. You can come in here and if you want to see what's in the glue, walk out there, see what's in the glue. I don't recommend tasting it. It's kind of bitter, but it's actually food safe. Your glue is food safe? Yes. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like one of the ways you're using your influence in your business is to create jobs with living wages, good jobs for people in your area, what other ways are you using your influence? Um, The whole sustainability part of what we do. So it's a lot easier to make more money doing the wrong thing. And the glue is a huge part of that. Or importing your material. We have more offers than you can shake a stick at to take this thing to a third world country where people aren't paid fair. And you're going to use formaldehyde-based glue. And the ingredients of the glue are going to get lost in the paperwork or translation from one place to the next. In building materials, that's actually common practice. And it's pretty disgusting when you really find out what's inside of your floor or what's being used in your drywall. And it happens all the time. And it makes big news. But people in the industry are just like, well, yeah, we all knew that. There's formaldehyde in 80% of the world's plywood. Everybody knew that if you use isocyanides inside of your glue, then you're going to have VOC emissions. Everybody knew that there's some contaminants in some of the cheap um, uh, drywall. So there's all these different things that people know. The dirtier the chemistry, basically petroleum-based chemistries, are stronger when it comes to water resistance. And so if you want something that's more water resistant, you have to add dirtier chemicals, which have a twofold effect. The first one is it puts off gassing into your house. And so if you're living in a house that has all the windows closed all the time and people are staying in their homes a lot more now due to COVID, I mean, people are literally locked in all over the world then you're breathing in those VOC emissions, the volatile organic compounds that come from your dirty glues. And so in avoiding that whole scenario, it's the right thing to do. The glue costs four times as much. And to be able to do it in the country where you're selling it cuts down on your carbon footprint. So we're actually the only carbon negative building material manufacturer in the United States. So you're very passionate about this. I, in our discussion, just this little bit we've had here and what we talked about beforehand, I imagine that you have some goals for that influence looking forward into the future. What do you see there? Well, the main objective is before we either get beat up or bought out because somehow, some way, In order for this to have the major impact that it needs to, it needs to become a large company that can get into all aspects of the market. And so before that happens, we need to have as much of our foundation literally concreted in the ground here. So the decision can't be made to send it somewhere cheaper where you can use a little bit dirtier of a glue. And when I say 
beat up or bought out. It's not a negative thing. That's the product life cycle for a building material. So first you come out with the innovators, the early adapters, and then you get into your standard mom and pop distribution channels where you have retail shops, where the individually owned ones. And then at some point, if you want to make that large carbon impact or that large deforestation impact, then it has to be scaled up. And I know I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a corporate guy. If you put me on Wall Street, I'd probably jump out the window. And so at some point, that transition has to happen. But my goal is to make sure there's multiple of these things in the States that are buying their hemp locally, buying their soy locally, because our glue is actually based off of soybean instead of off of oil. Like instead of petroleum, it's based off of the proteins from soy flour. And so if you can get 95% of your stuff comes from within 100 miles of where you're at, and 80% of your sales come from within 500 miles where you are for lead points for commercial build, then you've set up, in essence, a craft beer model for making hemp wood in different locations around the States. And then it's a matter of just continuing that model rather than setting up an enormous facility in Cambodia that tries to pay people a dollar an hour and use formaldehyde glue and send it all over the world. And that's where things go. If you don't have the, I guess, the foresight to see as soon as you set up a facility, it costs too much to move it out. The, the numbers don't work anymore for the finance guy who can clip the ticket depending on how it goes. I saw that happen with bamboo when I was doing that. And I've seen it happen with some of the other products because there's easier money to be made in getting somebody to make it cheaper and then charging 30% to bring it into your country. But it's the wrong thing to do because then you've got transportation all over the world. You've got pollution in areas that allow more pollution, things like that. So the main goal is get it in the right direction before it has to become such a big item that it has to be scaled. So the scale is always a lot of small local sawmills. I mean, we call it a block factory. But it's essentially a sawmill, hires about 20 people. I would love to have four to eight of these across the US. I'd love to have two or three of these in Canada. And we have a franchising model uh, and a licensing model as well. And the intellectual property we have, we have a couple of patents and a couple of trademarks in the US, in Canada, in Australia, and the European Union. So I'm trying to encourage the model that. In Europe, you've got six or eight, maybe even 10 of these block factories. And in Canada, you got two or three. In Australia, you got one or two. So it kind of sources locally, sells locally, makes it locally. And that whole circular economy or circular cycle of this all happens right there. So everyone here is actually a resident of the state of Kentucky. All of our hemp comes from within 100 miles. And we service Chicago and we service Atlanta and we service the Carolinas and things like that, our different customer bases. And our orders are so big on the West Coast that we're building one in Oregon. And then the orders in New England are catching up pretty quick. So the following year, we'll build one up there, up in Pennsylvania. Beautiful. 
And I have to say, my favorite part of your description there that helps will help me remember this is the craft beer model. <laughs> because that we've been through that. We've all experienced that. And so seeing how that can play out through your work, I love that. Thank you so much for joining us. For anyone who wants to catch up with you online, where can they find you? Oh, we're all over the place. The internet kind of takes what we do and throws it to all sectors of the world. So at hempwood.com, that is our website. You can also see our different social medias. We have YouTube, we're Fibonacci, or you can um, you can actually type in the search engine, Hempwood Origin Story, and you can see what we're all about and who our people are and what we're doing. You can go to our Instagram if you just check out hashtag Hempwood or we're Hempwood underscore on Instagram. You get to see all the creatives and all the artists and all the craftsmen that are making different stuff out of it. Because really, our job here is to get Hempwood into their hands in these early stages of it. So they can share with each other how it sands and how it stains and how it works and how it looks and what you do with it. That's kind of the sharing community on there. On Facebook, we actually have more commerce that occurs on Facebook and more hempwood on Facebook. But it's also like a battle zone on Facebook where no matter how positive of a thing you try to do, you've always got an enemy, it seems like. So there's a lot of salt being thrown on there. Um, and then we have some of the other different means online where you can see a lot of our customers just tagging us in different media methods. Uh, if you Google us, you can see someone writes a story or does a podcast on us every month. You can find a little bit of hempwood just about anywhere. But what we really need people to do and the call to action for this whole podcast is if you want locally made and you want locally grown, and if you want environmentally friendly products that are not harmful to you and your kids, you got to support us by buying the product. And it's really easy to find us. You just got to decide what you want to buy or what you want to do. And maybe you need to put some flooring in your home office. Or maybe you want to have some of these. You can see there's tables right here made out of it in our office. Then that's kind of what you got to do. So, yeah, support us. Find us. Buy some hempwood. Make something cool. And if you send us a picture back of it, then we'll share your work online and try to direct business to you. I love that. And I appreciate that in the midst of all the mayhem and the chaos that you took the time to share with us and enlighten us as to what you're doing and what's happening. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Greg. Hey, well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Future of Influence podcast. If you're interested in sharing your story by being a guest on our show, please visit https colon slash slash kingrajsingh.com slash podcast slash apply to apply. And if you liked what you heard, please also visit and follow us on all social media. Please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Once again, they call me King Raj Singh, and thanks again for listening to the Future of Influence podcast. Tune in next time.